All right, everybody. Well, welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, kind of a special edition uh, today. We've got three of us co-hosting this thing because uh, because we need to grill the master. Uh, we've got uh, Stacey Nelson and Derek Smith here uh, co-hosting, and we have Chris Fox Wallace on the line, uh, who's going to share a little bit about the iNinja resurrection, uh, the, the relaunch of the iNinja brand, which is super exciting. Uh, the first event coming up here in mid-December down in Iowa, so Fox is going to chat a little bit about that, and then we're going to grill him on uh, on one of the issues that a lot of us less experienced recreational players have been struggling with, and that is continuation betting on on different board textures and different situations and knowing when should we be C betting, when should we not, and I think it's it's something that continues to elude all of us, uh, or, or at least to some degree, and I think uh, every time we ask a pro like Fox, he says, well, it depends, and we know it depends, uh, so we're going <laughs> to dig in a little bit further into uh, why uh, why it depends, and it depends on what, uh, but first, just a quick thank you to all of you guys who are supporting us on Patreon, uh, who've been participating in the Rec Poker training stuff. Uh, you can look at all of the information that we have out there at recpokertraining.com. We've got some really cool play and learn sessions coming up that at some point we're going to get Fox involved in those uh, as well, but we got those coming up December 16th, so check that out. And as always, uh, thanks to Running Aces for your support and your sponsorship. So with that, uh, why don't I first introduce, uh, for those of you who are on YouTube, you can see all of us. If you're on the podcast, all you can do is hear us. But uh, Stacey Nelson, Stacey, why don't you just kind of share a little bit about your journey and kind of how you got into poker and, and why are you here today? Yeah, without taking up too much yeah. uh, Fox's time here, I'm uh, Stacy. I'm a good friend of Steve's, and he kind of wrote me into this several years <laughs> ago. We had a, a group of dads that wanted to start playing with their sons, and um, so they dragged me in for nickels and quarters and realized pretty soon that uh, he was playing poker and I was playing cards and realized that there's a lot more going on when he kept telling me what my hands were before I would ever show them. And so that got me involved going, okay, this is kind of cool. This isn't just a luck game like a lot of people talk about. And so we started just talking poker and the more we talked poker, the more we loved it and the more we wanted to kind of grow the whole idea of people that are just uh, wanting, to, wanting to learn the game. Yeah. And we're learning it together. Him and I are on this kind of similar, similar path, similar journey. Uh, Derek, what's, what's your deal, man? um also a rec player um been playing for about 10 or 12 years and um you know just started with friends like everybody else and kind of started to um realize over time that much like Stacey there was a lot more to the game than I thought there was the first couple years of playing and had um a couple good scores tournament you know success here and there and recognized that um you know I really enjoyed the game and um the psychology of the game and and in general and just competing. Um, I was uh, an athlete growing up uh, through college and eventually you can't compete that way anymore, but you can play <laughs> poker for quite, quite a long time and I hope to. So um, I had a chance to come across the Rec Poker podcast and meet Steve and it was kind of similar to something I had brewing in my mind for quite a while. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly kind of what I was thinking. So I had reached out to, to you, Steve, and um, ever since have been... Um, you know, a supporter, a listener, and um, just, you know, uh, glad to take part in anything possible. So, And more than that, a pretty significant contributor, contributor too. So thanks for all of the the contributions that you made on that deal. It's kind of fun to have this community that's growing, uh, kind of learning the game together, and you're a big part of that. So thanks, Derek. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Fox. Well, we had you on a little while ago to talk about uh, some rumblings of the iNinja resurrection, but now it's here, man. It's upon us. We're on the eve of of, of the greatness of the restart. So tell us a little bit about 
Uh, you can give us it, some background if you want, or just kind of go forward. But what are we talking about here? Yeah, it is finally the real deal. And we have a couple of other big announcements coming. Uh, 2019 is going to be a big year. We have a number of significant events that are going to happen in 2019. Um, but the event that's coming up are our actual resurrection. The zombies come back to life <laughs> in ninja uniforms. Uh, we just got the resurrection chips, which are going to be what people use to turn in to get their their life back. Um, I just got a picture of those, and they they look great. So I'm pretty happy about it. Uh, we're going to be at Diamond Joe on December 15th at noon. Um, and the resurrection concept, um, you just, when you go broke, you turn in your resurrection chip and you get 20 big blinds at whatever level you are at. So if you go broke, you know, if you don't go broke until heads up and you go broke, you get 20 big blinds and the guy's got to bust you again. So when you use your resin, you know, when you use your last chip, when you put your last chips in the pot is really important. And it brings up all kinds of interesting poker questions about, you know, the blinds are going to go up in four minutes and I have four big blinds left and I have two Queens. Right. Should I go all in here? Uh, you know, lots of interesting questions there, because if you wait, when the blinds go up, you get 20 big blinds at a much, you know, at the higher level. So. That's yeah, that's super interesting. super interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, but if you can if you can hold up with your queens, then you can maybe survive another level or two, you know, before you have to use sure. it for the next 20. So yeah, certainly interesting conversations there. And and you said something yeah. else on one of your other, like when we were chatting or whatever, about uh, even just being at the final table or getting down to the you know, the final five or six, if if somebody has that chip and how does that impact how you play? Yeah. What you you'd love to be the guy with the only guy left with oh. a resurrection chip with a good size stack at the final table because you can just you just pound <clears throat> really over that table. Yeah. <laughs> so what was sort of the the idea behind that? What did you obviously the resurrection thing is because the rebrand you know the brand sort of resurrecting a phoenix out of the ashes sort of thing. But did you steal this concept or borrow this concept from somebody else or? Were you and Soja and Jordan just sitting around brainstorming with cocktails some night and came up with this scheme or how, how did how'd you come up with this idea? The latter is exactly how it happened. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> the three of us sitting around with cocktails brainstorming was exactly how it happened, but we're not the first place to ever do anything like this. Um, the world series had a, a triple bullet or something kind of event a few years ago that I played where you got, um, you got, 5,000 in chips for, for each of these little chips that you turned in and you got three of them. And so you could use them at any time, including when you went broke. And, um, it wasn't, I didn't think as interesting as this. Um, I thought it might be more interesting, but it really wasn't because you didn't have to go broke to use them. And most people just bought in and dumped their three chips down and got all their chips right away. It's, it's certainly things kind of similar have been done before, but I've never played anything quite like it. And it was just a, how do we how do we celebrate the resurrection and how do we get a tournament that's themed like that? And when we came up with the idea, uh, you know, we all play tournaments pretty seriously and we all thought that would be really fun to play. Yeah. So talk, talk a little bit more than just uh, the logistics of it, where it's at, what time it's starting, the date, the, the buy and all that kind of stuff. We're at Diamond Joe's in Northwood, Iowa, which is right on the border of Iowa and Minnesota. And it's right on 35. So from the Twin Cities, you just get on 35 and drive south till you cross the Iowa border and you get off at the next exit near Diamond Joe's. Hmm. Uh, really nice place. We did an event with Next Level, which is kind of the iNinja parent company at this point. Um, they're 
last year and we really liked it. Um, it's a fun place and it's the closest place to the Twin Cities to play No Limit Hold'em. So a lot of people head down there. They tend to have big bad beat jackpots. So a lot of people head down for the weekend and uh, play and chase those jackpots. But the games are great. The table games are great. I know some people from the Twin Cities really like to play craps and you can, there's a lot of dice games at Diamond Joe's too. So um, it's worth the trip. We'll be, at, we'll be there December 15th at noon, which is a Saturday at noon. Um, late entry for at least a couple of hours. I should look that up. Probably a thing I should know. This one's kind of been Soja's baby because he lives in Minnesota and I live in Vegas. So right. he's had this one a little more than I am. But um, it'll be late entry for a few hours. It's 100 plus 5 plus 25. So it's a $100 buy-in. There's no rake on that. And then $5 for the dealer add-on. And then $25 for the resurrection chip. So it's 130 basically. Yep, for, 12, for 12K, yeah. Uh, for 15. Oh, so, okay, it's 12 plus 3. Okay, gotcha. Yep, yep 12 plus 3, yeah. I'm looking and at then, the flyer right now, but I've just learned how to read, so I'm, I'm kind of working through that <laughs> as we go. Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it feels like it's about time. Yeah. Literacy is huge. <laughs> That's what I've heard. I went to Rwanda and they inspired me to learn how to read. So that was good. Uh, so, okay. So 12,000 starting stack plus the three. So 15,000, 20 minute levels, which is, I mean, we're at 15,000 chips, 20 minute levels for a one day event. That's not so bad. It's, uh, you know, as a tournament player, I kind of look at each of these things that we put out and, and, and kind of like, I try to look at it from a critical perspective of a player and at first, when, when Brian sent me the idea of 20-minute levels with, the, with all the levels in there and the big blind anti-structure, right. I thought that's a little faster than I would like. But it's a $130 event. What are you going right. to do? Well, and and I realized with, with 15K starting at 100, 100, um, it's actually not a bad structure with 20-minute blinds. But when you add in the resurrection right. chip, it's a fantastic structure. It ends up being equivalent to a half hour or more structure because so many people are, you know, everybody's going to have that resurrection chip. So everybody's starting with, you know, a minimum of 17,000. If you go broke the first hand, you get 2,000 right. for your 20 big blinds. But if you, you know, go broke in level 15, you could get 100,000. And so we're, it actually adds a ton of chips to the structure and it makes it probably equivalent to half hour blinds. So yeah, um, it feels like in those structures, it feels like, you know, generally, uh, you know, at, at those stacks that are running aces, you kind of get to that, you know, half the field around blinds at 500, 1,000, somewhere in that range. So if, if you kind of use that as a general average and people are on average getting 20,000 more chips, yeah, that becomes a decent starting stack. And it's a lot of chips in play, especially if you can draw good. Absolutely. The only, que the only question becomes if they have enough chips, if we, you know, if, if you get to heads up and both people are um, – right. you know, both people have their chip and then they're both turning it in when you're at, you know – 120,000, 240,000, right, exactly. some crazy thing. Then, you know, the house has got to go get a big pile <laughs> of chips from the back. I would like 4 million chips, please. <laughs> right. Using checks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can bring, uh, don't you have some, some iNinja or some next level plaques or something that you could bring? And... Yeah, we'll just write IOUs. Right, exactly. Like, well, Derek's been there. We'll do that like in our home game when we run out of chips, if we have too many rebites. It's okay, well, these these white chips are now 100,000. That's kind of how... how... <laughs> How would you think? Well, you guys play big. What's that? You guys play big. Oh, yeah. You know, go big or go home, Fox. That's kind of our motto. Yeah, the buy-ins are huge. You, you probably yeah, wouldn't so be comfortable they, in that sort of a game. Yeah. I would invite you, but you probably, it's probably I a little bit back. 
<laughs> you'd have to go on U-Stake or something to be able to play our home games. <laughs> yeah, no, I can definitely find a backer. Just invite me now. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what your markup would be in our home game. We had Max Havlish came one time and just ran us over. It was really sad. Um, so he's probably getting about 1.8 markup or so. Uh, anyway, so well, congratulations on the relaunch of the Ninja brand. Anything else kind of going on that you can share yet? I know you've got the big year coming up. Anything you want us to know about? Uh, how do we follow you on Twitter or Facebook? I know you got a few different Ninja handles. Kind of tell us how do we how do we plug in now or how do we re-plug in with uh, iNinja? iNinjaPoker.com. We had to threaten to sue someone to get that domain back, but we got it. Um <laughs> At iNinjaPoker on Twitter. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash iNinjaPoker. Um, and then you can always find me and ask me any questions you have. Or Soja, Soja loves to ask questions and buy drinks. So if you see Soja, <laughs> ask him any questions you have and also have him buy you a drink. And can we, we tell will him? all be at the event as well. Okay, and we can tell him that you told us that he would buy us a drink, right? That's kind of yeah. for all of our listeners. Absolutely. Yep. That's, yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, unless there's anything else in there, why don't we, why don't we shift gears to some strategy talk or uh, unless, did you have anything else you wanted to share about the, the, the tournament or iNinja or next level? No, let's see if I can make myself useful. All right. Well, you already have. So we'll, we'll see if you can make yourself more useful. So All this right. is, you know, this is obviously poker is an incredibly complex game, but this seems to be one of those things that keeps coming back uh, as a question that I get a lot. Uh, I struggle with myself playing, but I also get this question a lot. And uh, it really is around, um, okay, I've got my preflop ranges defined pretty well. And so I open preflop, whether that's, let's just say for the sake of argument, I open, you know, middle position uh, preflop. There's no other action until a blind uh, calls me. Somebody calls me out of one of the blinds. All right. And now what do I do when the flop comes? You know, let's, you know, in some cases, obviously you, you don't hit the flop. Uh, in some cases, you already have a made hand and the flop is good for you. In some cases, the, the the flop is really bad for you. You don't hit anything at all. You know, and I think we struggle with, okay, what should be our framework for that? Um, you know, and I think we're looking for concepts. You know, I think we can talk about specific hands and I think those are important to get us there. But like, what are those general concepts behind when I should be saving, when I shouldn't? How much weight do I give to the board texture? How much weight do I give to my opponent? How much weight do I give to my chip stacks? You know, and I know it depends on all of those things, but we're kind of, I guess, coming to coming to you to say, all right, just help. Um, you know, and if nothing else, I'm super transparent in saying sometimes I'm just lost. Um, like it just feels like, it, you know, I'm just making the wrong play all the time. It feels like in some tournaments, like I'm c betting when I shouldn't be, and I'm not c betting when I should be, and maybe that's just variance. But I'm just sometimes I just feel lost. And uh, love to start the discussion there. I'm sure I can help with a lot of those things. <clears throat> it is tough to get really good at poker without kind of continuous, uh, continuous change. You know, the, the reason your game has improved so much is because you're always looking to learn the next thing and move on to the next thing, you know, that the constant study. Um, but it, it, it is frustrating because you start off with learning um, you know, here are my preflop ranges. I'm always scared when somebody tells me I have my preflop ranges down because that's that'll get you stuck in in kind of the mid level of of poker understanding because you really need to be altering those every hand and and looking at what you can attack and who's likely to attack you and all the situations that uh, come out of that. So I just wanted to say that so that you 
so that you're aware that there's another step that you have to go. And, and, and when you get to that next step, you're not really thinking about preflop ranges at all. Um, that the idea that you could create a chart and just play by this chart and you get to win is, is like enticing. We love that idea. You know, I love that idea too. If I could do that, I would, but it, it isn't a thing. It doesn't work that way. And everybody wants it to be a thing. Everybody wants to know the secret. You know, I have students all the time who just, who will take a couple lessons and, and clearly be frustrated that I haven't told them the secret yet. <laughs> As if I go, here's what you do. And you can go make uh, $300,000 a year playing 510 now. And they just, they, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of changing how you think about things. And, and just using a chart can make you lazy. So you've, you, you have to do that in order to have a basic understanding of preflop play. But now that you've done that, start looking to the next thing. Don't rest on that preflop chart. So, so you would say, because some of that, you know, I know you had that in your book, No Limits, what they did with Adam Stemple and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. So the idea is that it's okay to have those, but really as a default sort of starting point, sort of template, don't get married to it, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Because you still would argue that there should still be some some structure of your preflop ranges, right? Like I, I, there's certain hands that I know I'm going to raise with certain hands I know I'm not going to play, or is, it, is even that up for, up for debate? Even, or, even that is up for discussion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you'll notice if you... If you look at the the preflop starting hands chart in the book, um, Adam did all the graphics and, and he did, he did this really well. Um, oh, got all blurry. Where it gets all blurry in the later right. positions, uh, yeah. we had a number of people call us and ask us if it was a typo or something. <laughs> I'm sure and it's not. Even we though want, you write right in there, you say right in there, it's intentionally getting blurry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, in later position, really the chart kind of goes out the window. We, we provide a, a pretty specific way to play in early position because there's so many people to act behind you, you can't be as flexible. But even then, uh, my range has changed significantly. You know, mm. Last night I played in a game where at one point I was probably playing 50 or 60% of the hands and three or four hours later, the game completely changed, and I was probably playing twelve percent of the hands. Hmm. You okay. have to you have to change drastically in a tournament. It might not be quite as big a change. This was a cash game, but mm-hmm. um, so that is a thing to know. But okay. as to the the heart of the the C betting and flop textures and all that kind of stuff, unrelated to that little comment that took up half the podcast. Well, no, I think that's important because I know that you'll say, uh, or at least you have in the past said, well, we can't talk about the post-flop unless we talk a little bit about the pre-flop, you know, it all, it all is integrated. It all works together. So I think that's good to at least start with that assumption that you're making there. So when we're, when you're feeling lost, it can be from pre-flop play. You know, it can be that you didn't uh, you didn't think ahead enough preflop and you got yourself in a tough spot. But uh, often it is just that you don't know which factors to weigh. Yeah. And you know, they're they're all factors that work with each other. Um, you're considering all of them, and you're not really weighting them. At least I don't see it as much weighting them as considering each one, uh, because some of them you'll throw out entirely. You know, uh, depending on the hand. But if we get uh, the flop texture, doesn't matter very much if we don't know our opponent's range. Now, you will have game theory people, and I know that, you know, I'm kind of 
people kind of think I'm a game theory guy because I wrote about game theory for Bluff Magazine for a long time, but I'm really not a, a GTO style player. I've learned to be very exploitive and not to worry as much about playing unexploitable. And it's made me a lot more money. So when I think about flop texture, it flop texture is not as important if I don't, unless I know my opponent's range. So those two things work together. And those are the two things you're worried about in terms of understanding, uh, you know, how often they've hit that and how, well, how they're going to play against it. Then you're worried about stack sizes because it doesn't matter, you know, what his range is. If you don't know his stack size, it's going to be very tough to play against him. It's almost like everything is necessary and you have to think about each of them and unless there's a reason to throw it out. So, so none of them are kind of twice as important as another in my mind. You have to know all of them. And then once you know them, you can think about how they affect the hand. So if you raise with ace-king for middle position, the button flats and the big blind flats, and they're both you know fairly deep stacks, but the button is 106 years old and has a John Deere hat on, and the big blind is... 22 and has a Swedish accent and a three bet hoodie. These are very different people and they're going to have very different ranges, even though they've kind of done the same things. Hmm. And then when the flop comes Jack, Jack five and let's switch the positions. Let's say that the button is the old guy and the, and the, or the, the big blind is the old guy and the button is the, the Swedish kid. The flop comes Jack, Jack five you can lead into that flop because often the Swedish kid, now he's stuck between you and the old guy and he can't get as frisky as he normally would because there's still someone to act behind him. Hmm. If the, if, if we switch it and put the Swedish kid in the, in the big blind, now you may not want to see bet because if you see bet the Swedish, the, the old guy is usually going to fold. If he doesn't fold, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> he's usually going to fold. And if he folds, the Swedish kid is going to check raise you or he's going to call and he's going to try to represent a Jack and you're not going to know if he has a Jack. And if he has a Jack, you're going to lose a big pot. If you had an ace or a King, it's a very troublesome situation. So you're either going to end up playing a pot with the old guy where he has a Jack or with the Swedish kid where you don't know if he has a Jack, it's going to be frustrating. You may want to check behind and keep the pot small. If you do that, you've, you've taken away some of the Swedish kids chance to be aggressive with you. And the, and the old guy, you're not that worried about anyway. Either he has a monster or he's going away, usually. Although that's not always true these days either. I heard I was in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and I, out on break from a tournament, and I heard two old guys talking, and the one guy said, well, I just check-raised the turn. That's just what you do these days. Because <laughs> look at me. I'm old. And they fold. <laughs> Even old guys aren't old guys anymore. <laughs> they don't. Once now that everybody knows that stuff, now the Swedish kid plays tight sometimes because he knows everybody knows he's the 22 year old Swedish kid. So <laughs> you can't always rely on that stuff. But if we look at player types, you know, with these kinds of players on this board with these players, I'm going to check behind if the Swedish kid is on the button much more often. Uh, if the Swedish kid is. Or, sorry, if the Swedish kid is in the yeah, yeah, much more often, even though I have position on him, I'm more way more comfortable checking behind to see how things go. If he's on the button and I check, uh, he'd be getting myself in trouble. And if I see that, I could be getting myself in even more trouble. When he's on the button, it's a very frustrating spot. 
So, so is any of that check behind, say that, say the Swedish kid, let's just call him Max Havlisch just for fun, even though he's not Swedish. Uh, <laughs> okay. He always says he looks like the European kid. Uh, but, but, you know, let's just say he's in the blind. Is part of that checking behind with Ace King, I guess, is any of that sort of underrepresenting your hand? Or is it simply just pot control and not wanting to get pushed off a hand that has some equity and is maybe ahead? I, I don't think you underrepresent your hand a lot there because I think a lot of people will check pairs there as well. I don't think they're going, it's, I don't think it's going to significantly change how strong they think your hand is, okay. but it does change what they think your hand is. And it gives you the opportunity to tell a lot of different stories without having to put a ton of chips in to figure it out. Because you uh, might be checking back a Jack there a lot of times too, right? Against aggressive players. You could be that they, they don't know. Right. I'm, I'm not checking back a Jack. Right. There. Right. <laughs> you're they hoping to get check raised, right? And that's, that's what you're hoping. I, or just to get all the money in the pot somewhere. Okay. I'm almost never going to be checking back a jack there unless there's a you know a crazy player who ships it in every time you check to him twice or something. So so how does that change? Uh, how does that dynamic change if you have, say, pocket tens in that spot? Is that any different than the ace-king? Yes. Uh, pocket tens is not going to get any better. Ace-king is. Okay. So I'm much more willing to see bet the pocket tens there. Um if the Swedish kid calls me and he's in the big blind, then I'm going to check behind turn in most cases. Sometimes I'm going to get a read on him. Sometimes I'm going to catch a 10. Who knows what else might happen? But I'm going to check most turns behind and then call the river with most rivers because he's going to lead. You know, If, if it's an aggressive player like yeah. that, he's going to lead the river and I'm going to call. Uh, and then I'm kind of setting it up as a bluff catch. But if you're playing against a really good player – that doesn't work because they're not going to give you that automatic bluff that, you know, so many recreational players will give you there when they're kind of aggressive recreational players will give you that automatic bluff and, and the really good player won't. So you, you really have to know your opponent to know how to handle these situations. So in that case, you're, I guess you're, you're betting flop because you've got a made hand and you're not likely to improve. Um, you know, you get called out of the blind by the, the aggressive player, you check back the turn, Part of that to underrepresent your hand, part of that as pot control, and then part of that to almost to induce a, a river bet by them. All three of those things. It does yep. because it accomplishes all three of those things, it ends up being clearly the right play in the in a typical situation. But you have to be flexible enough to look at the right. look at this guy and say, No, he calls he calls one bet so often and then folds the turn a lot that I have to bet again, or he would never check raise me without a Jack. So I have to bet again, you know, you have to be flexible enough, but this would be kind of your foundation would be the bet, the flop, check the turn, call the river. That would be equivalent to your pre-flop starting hands chart. You don't want to rely on it all the time, but it, but it is your foundation. And then, then once I, once I check back the turn there, um, you know, I'm almost not obligated, of course, but I think the the EV play is to is to probably call most rivers, right? Because they're they're probably going to fire unless it's really a scare card. I mean, because you've underrepresented your hand, you're sort of like you said, turned it into a bluff catcher. That's sort of a, a standard approach there. Absolutely, you don't want to turn your hand into a bluff catcher if you're not going to call. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, if you're checking turn to be able to induce a bluff, you don't you you have to be able to call, right? Okay. Right, but you have to reassess that bluff when you see it. I mean, if the you know. If the river is the king right. and he suddenly bets twice the pot, you probably still have to fold because he's he's got to have it. He's right. Gotta, you know, he's got to have at least the king, but usually he has the jack there and he's betting twice the pot hoping you have ace king. Yeah. Okay. 
Say, hey, Fox, can I ask a yeah. quick question real quick on that? Um, with the 10s, I just, I'm curious because I feel like a lot of times rec players are told like, we're not betting or checking or whatever to sort of see where we're at, but it feels like innately that's kind of why we are choosing to do what we do to see what the next, you know, what the next action is. But I, I feel like I regularly hear that, you know, that used to be a thing that you'd kind of, you know what I mean? Bet to find out where you're at or whatever action you take to see where you're at. And, and it seems like that's kind of frowned upon, but it also feels like most of the times when you hear people explain some of these situations, that that's really what they are doing. And even kind of a bit of the way you describe playing the tens makes me think that that's a bit of what's happening. I've typically counseled against for years and years that bet to find out where you're at. Um, it's that's an expensive way to get that information. And often you can get it cheaper other ways. Uh, it is a factor sometimes in weighing whether you bet or check or how much you bet. Uh, sometimes the fact that you're going to get a bunch of information can be a factor, but typically it's not a big factor for me. I think with the tens, um, the reason we end up bluff calling the river is because we never do anything that tells us where we're at. If I bet on that board against a 22 year old Swedish kid in a three bet hoodie, I know he's calling the flop all the time. And then when I check the turn, I know he's betting the river all the time. So I have no definition on his hand at all, which is fine because getting definition on his hand was going to be very expensive for me. Instead, calling the river is more likely to be expensive for him. Okay. I'm not, I'm not betting the flop to get any definition on his hand. Now against the old guy, um, John Deerhat guy, if I flop and he raises, he's got a Jack in his hand and I can fold anything. Okay. But you have to know, you know, you have to know the guy. So I hate to, I hate to be using these, um, these stereotypes, I feel like I could be giving you enough information to get yourself in trouble <laughs> when I talk about that because I do a lot of player reading. It's a really important part of my game, especially in the cash games that I play these days, uh, you know, four or five nights a week. Uh, reading a new player when they sit down is really important, but I've become a real expert at that. And in particular, in the games that I play and for the information that I need, I've learned to do it really well. And I hate to tell people, oh, you know, you can do this against this kind of player because then they're going to go do that against that kind of player and they're going to get torn apart because sometimes the 22 year old kid in the Swedish, uh, 22 year old Swedish kid in the three bet hoodie is a wizard and he's really good. And if you play with him against him that way, you're going to lose every dollar you have. And, and you have to be able to judge that and figure out, is this, who is this person? How good are they? What are they doing? But if we use those stereotypes, because kind of just as examples of people who actually do play the way they look, then we can, you know, they're, they're convenient for hand histories. Okay. So, so and I want to get to, I know Derek has an actual hand example, so I want to get to that in a second. But um, one of the things I want to just clarify, Fox, what I'm hearing is uh, certain players, it's going to be hard to know what their range is anyway. So looking at board texture and saying, well, this is good for the range or bad for the range, it sort of doesn't really factor in that heavily. Uh, you're just sort of playing, how do I want this to play out? flop river or flop turn river well you can always put them on a range it's mm -hmm. just sometimes it's very wide right and, fair enough and sometimes it's not worth putting the chips in to get the information or making the play to find out you know right you just can find out on the river and get there uh, so so what about against opponents that maybe are a little bit easier to 
hand range. So I, I bet middle position or I open middle position and I, I get called by somebody, you know, who's fairly predictable in terms of what they defend with out of the, out of the big blind. You know, I mean, maybe I know they're two Broadway cards or, you know, pairs up to sevens or, you know, if, if I kind of know what their general defending range is um, in that situation, when the flop comes, you know, how much are you thinking about their range when you're deciding, is this, uh, I, I guess when you're looking at the board texture, are you saying this is better for my hand or, you know, for my range than versus their range, or are you simply just thinking about their range and saying it doesn't really matter how it is for my range? I mean, what, what's sort of going through your mind when you are uh, making a determination if you're going to see bet against somebody who defends with a fairly predictable range? So there's some very good players like um, Matt Burke is an example. I know you've had him on the show Yeah, um, who play a very GTO style. Um, I've played with Matt and I know that he's not all GTO, that he actually does pay attention to his opponents and exploit them. But what he teaches is very GTO and a lot of very good coaches and very good players, a very GTO approach, a very unexploitable approach. Um, if you're, doing that against a player like this, where you can really read and you know a lot about, especially if this is not a very strong player, you're giving up a ton of value. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at this player, like, but then again, if you're playing the best players in the world, which often Matt Berkey's playing against, then you, you have to have the GTO there and be using it. Um, you know, I don't need the PO solver to, to, to play against someone whose ranges I know that well and who is a typical recreational player, you know, if you're playing $200 tournaments in the Midwest like you do a lot and you, and you run into a guy whose range you know, you should just – and you've got position on him and he just called from the big blind, you should be ecstatic. Like, you're going to crush that guy. Yep. This hand, he's in real trouble. Because not only do you – you know his range and you know that it's all, you know – basically shoulders and torso because if it was head he would have three bet right. and if it was below the belt he would have folded so you you really know like where this guy's range is that whole strip of of his range and then you can look at the flop and compare it to the flop whereas if you're playing gto you look at the flop and you think how would he you know how's he going to view my range on this flop and you're thinking like multiple levels of how do i handle this in a GTO situation, but in the situation you're describing, you just look at his hand and how did he hit this flop? How often did he hit this flop? And then your hand only tells you just what do you want him to do? What, how do you want to manipulate this situation? You know, if the flop is 10, nine, eight, you don't love that board against a, you know, against the torso defense range. But if your hand is ACE nine, then you're not in terrible shape and you kind of, it's going to be helpful for you to know where you are. And, you know, this is one of the times where that actually matters. Um, if you just check behind, then he's going to bet every time you're in trouble. But if you know your player, you may know that this guy never bets without a hand and you can check behind with, even with ACE nine, if you want to and see how the turn looks and find out if he's got a hand, if you know, he's going to bet anytime he has a big hand, <coughs> excuse me, and you know that he's going to check when he doesn't, that's, that's amazing for you. And you can use that information. <clears throat> so anytime that you have that kind of information on a player, the GTO stuff just kind of doesn't matter. It falls yeah. away. Falls away. Um, if the flop is four, four, five, now you've really got him because either he has fives full of fours or he has nothing or he, or he can't get, or he can't play a huge pot with you. Mm -hmm. So then, 
just looking at how deep are the stacks. Can I, you know, and, and let's say that you have ace jack, right? You kind of the bottom of your middle position raising range for a tournament. So you don't you don't have anything and you're not really excited about it. You're you're kind of considering your hand to be a bluff, but you're gonna make your bluff's gonna work because you know this guy. And you know that he doesn't have a hand better than uh, you know a pair of tens, a pair of nines, and unless he's got a full house, everything else he's gonna fold if you put enough heat on him. So then you're looking at stack sizes. How do I plan this out? I can bet the flop. Then I can bet this much on the turn. You know, you can, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term down bet, where you bet like a third of the pot on the flop, and then you make a much bigger bet on the turn. That might work in this spot. If the turn doesn't hit his hand, which it usually won't, because right. if it's his hand, it's very likely to have hit your hand. <clears throat> because all his small pairs are going to usually miss. You know, probably at least be an over to him, at least be a scare card for him. Right. Yep. So you can, you can down bet the flop and, and then bet bigger on the turn and chase him away. You can also, if you know this guy and you know that he's going to do certain things, you can bet the flop and bet like two thirds of the pot on the flop because you know, he's going to float and then check behind on the river or check behind on the turn and then raise him off it on the river. If you know this guy, just take the pot away from him on the river because think how, how intimidating that river raise is. So if it's like, if it's you as an example, and I raise the river in that spot, you're going to fold the vast majority of your hands. You kind of, you're going to have to have at least trips to consider calling. Me. Um, yeah. But your game evolves constantly, so maybe that's not true anymore. Well, no, <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> how, many, how many pots have you taken from me over the years that you had nothing? Uh, I don't, never. I've, I've never done that. I wouldn't never, do that. Never, never, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's good, man. That, that's good stuff. And that's just sort of that, you know, a lot of, you know, I hear you guys talk about it, and it's so second nature. You're like, well, then just do this. Well, then just do this, and then just do this. And and so, you know, Derek, I want to get to your hand, but, but I think, you know, for me, it, part of that is – or I guess question for you, Fox. I mean, I guess how much of that is, man, just really working off the felt, trying to really develop that strategy, trying to figure out, you know, thinking ahead three streets and how much of that is just, just reps, just playing. Yeah. It, it requires both those things. Um, some, sometime if you want to do a little reading, there's a book called the talent code that I think is really good. Um, and it talks about, uh, this, this guy kind of went all over the world and talked to the best coaches in the world. And he talked about how to teach. And it was a thing that I read when I wanted to learn how to get to be a better coach, a better poker coach. And um, it helped a lot. And, and, and I also saw it in my past martial arts teachers. As I, as I read this book, I thought, Oh, that's why this guy was so good. Because what it, it turns out that the way that you teach someone to do something well is to have them do that, have them do it, correct whatever they did wrong, have them do it again, correct whatever they did wrong, have them do it again. That And that kind of repetition is what works. You don't have someone do something wrong a hundred times and then critique it. Mm -hmm. And you don't give them lots of explanation about how to do it correctly and then have them do it once and then give them an hour of explanation again. You have them do it, you correct their mistakes, you have them do it again. You keep doing that. And that works with poker very well. It's, it's a way that I found to work really efficiently with my students as well is to get the reps in, but also be studying off the table so that you have things to, you know, things to work on. I give people exercises for when they play 
you know, your exercise tonight is this gave a student their exercise for tonight is to they're going to go play a tournament and they're going to know what everybody's stack is at the table at all times during the hand and how, how it compares to the pot size and how many big blinds it is. You need to look across the table and know that guy has 65,000. It doesn't have to be exact, but it's got to be close. That guy has 65,000, which is 35 big blinds, whatever it is, right? You have to know everybody's stack in big blinds. You have to know how it's going to compare to the pot. You're playing all those things. So I give them exercises um, that, and, and they're things you have to do while you're playing. So the, the, the way to get better at this kind of analysis of flops and opponents hand ranges is to study it and then go do it while you're playing. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest part. Most players can study a little bit away from the table if they, you know, if they, if they want to get better and they can go play, but they aren't applying things and thinking about those, those lessons while they're playing, which is where the actual learning happens. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, it's hard. The, the, the step of correct it is hard because we don't have, we don't have you looking over our shoulder saying you need to correct that. So, you know, we're sort of stuck trying to figure that out on our own. So that's where, you know, these kinds of conversations learning a community is helpful because we might think we're doing everything correctly without somebody saying you're actually not. <laughs> yeah. You have to have a couple of poker buddies who are good yeah. or a coach or a forum. Definitely. It, it, you have to have that. Uh, I've had, a, a, I can't tell you the number of students I've had where I know what their problem is. I can tell, from the sound of their voice, from the from the their demeanor, I can tell that uh, you know. For example, uh, that they are too scared, and so I will say, okay, you you raise uh, you're in the big blind, and I'll describe a player who's a, kind of a typical. Let's say um, one of my archetypes that I use sometimes with my student is Titleist hat. Right? <laughs> and it's like middle aged wearing a golf wearing golf gear. Um, they're very competitive. They tend to play fairly well. Um, and they're, they're aggressive and sticky, but fairly tight and they will exploit whatever weakness you show them. So, uh, I say that guy raises the button and you're in the big blind with a seven of clubs. What is, what do you think his range is on the button? And the replies I get are crazy in terms of how strong this, they, they make this guy's range, <laughs> they don't have to call. And right, if, I say, right. if I say like a seven offsuit, suddenly this guy's range is like super strong. So they don't have to play a seven offsuit out of position because they don't want to. And then I'll say, well, okay. They'll say something like, Oh, ace 10 are better. Sevens are better. And King queen. And I go, you think he's going to open fold sixes? Oh, no, I guess any pair. You think he's going to open fold ace deuce? No, I guess any ace. (laughs) Open fold king nine. Oh, his range is pretty wide there, isn't it? Jack 10 suited, right? Yeah. 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 You think he's open folding four six of diamonds? Never. So all of a sudden, his range is eight times as big as what it was. It's hard to not let that, that, you know, the psychological stuff affect how you're reading those ranges. Hmm. So then, you know, knowing, being able to bounce that off somebody is the only way that they're going to get that kind of information because otherwise they're going to be thinking that's what his range is and folding and they're never going to see his hand and they're going to be doing the comfortable thing which feels good, which is folding the stupid A7 offsuit and not getting in trouble. And that's exactly, you know, it, it's, a, it's a thing that 
you keep wanting to do because it worked psychologically because it made you happy. You, have you, get, you get the cookie, right? You get the cookie. Yeah. I made a good fold. Yeah. And if you don't yeah. have somebody telling you that's wrong, you could, you could end up doing it forever, which is how some people are, you know, play for 30 years and they're still bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a hard time talking about how it really is. Right. Fox. Hey, so, <laughs> so we, we just have like 10 minutes left and I, I, I wanted to, I know Derek had a hand example. I don't know if Derek, if you still have that, I'd love to have you kind of throw that out there. Yeah, if you're open to it, Fox, that'd be great. I think it's pretty applicable of what we're saying uh, in the sense that, like Steve had mentioned, um, I got to a point where I felt lost. And it's funny that you mentioned Ace Jack, in particular, in one of your examples, Fox, because that's uh, specifically what I had. But uh, real quick before that, I read The Talent Code recently, and I can second that, uh, Fox. That's a, that was a really interesting read, a really cool book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing that I definitely think that uh, um, some rec players struggle with and myself I'm sure too at, at some point and maybe still is they'll say something like what do you think I shoved 15 big blinds with jack nine uh, you know with one one raise in middle position and that's it and there's really no composition to the hand and and so I apologize if it feels a little aggressive but I I think that as players if we want to be able to get um better results and learn from players that are better than us you have to have greater detail than what you're providing when you kind of walk through a hand history or else you're kind of just looking to sort of have someone go yeah i think i would have did that too oh good i feel all right about it so um so the hand here was um we were the six handed final six final table five got paid uh the hero i'll call myself the hero uh, i was chip leader (laughs) with 220k and the villains got 160k there are two stacks that are shorter, but they're not crazy short. And comparatively, we're all really short technically because I'm chip leader and I have about 22 big blinds. So really everyone is technically short. But in this instance, um, they're short, but not extremely short. Uh, so I said ICM is a thing. I'd like to at a minimum get to five-handed, realize a 2.6x payout, and then go for the win. So blinds are at 5 and 10K, and I'm under the gun, the villain's the button. I have a snug image, but have late have built a bit of a big stack just because of an above average distribution of cards. So I don't know if villain is thinking I've been opening it up a lot lately, but really it was more so I just had caught an unusually nice streak of good hands. The villain's aggressive, capable, and sticky, and Tenote has opened jam no less than a dozen times over the past hour. <laughs> so I look down under the gun with, at ace jack off, and I open to the table norm of 22,000. I think that's pretty standard, I hope. Uh, there's two folds and the villain calls and both blinds fold. Now, when I say standard, I'm emphasizing, but because um, I know there's definitely later, I'm wondering if it's better to just be open jamming that. But um, in this instance, that's what I did. There's two folds, villain calls. I did take note that the villain took what for him would be a non-standard uh, action or choice in that it wasn't aggressive. He just called from the button. Yeah, he's got a resteal stack. He should be repping yeah, it sure. most yeah. of his range, so... It definitely made me, it, it had me thinking he was really polarized in, does he have like aces or kings and he's really just trying to get me, you know, playing it tricky. Otherwise it really feels like he's got probably some pretty good, gar- not good, some garbage. So uh, the flop is ten seven four rainbow. And I realize this is a, a definitely better for the villain's calling range from the button. But I also think I'm still likely to be ahead here. And if I check any bets, I can check call and see a turn. But if I don't improve, I'll have to give up and check fold probably on the turn. So I elect to see bet and do so for about 40% pot to 24,000 and villain calls. Do we think that, I mean, (laughs) in this instance, we feel all right so far. Tell me more about what you knew about this guy. I mean, you know that he's jammed a bunch of times, but you've been playing with this guy. What, What do you, do you think that he's flatting here and then 
and then folding a lot of flops? Is he I, actually doing that? Because some players are just aren't, aren't doing that much. I mean, is, is he flatting king-queen here? Because that's the kind of hand that he would usually, I would expect most players like this to jam over a raise. And so I would say he's he's either got aces or kings, probably aces being a lot more frequent than kings because people are afraid to do this with kings more often. Or does he have a pair of sixes? And if he's, that makes kind of, if he's got that kind of range where he's got like, it's all head and feet where he's, he's either got a really strong hand or he's got a very speculative hand. All the very speculative hands have kind of flopped a little something. Either they've got a pair and they think you've got two over cards or they've got some kind of inside straight drawers. You know, they've all got a little something. Yeah. But if he's the kind of player who could have, you know, ace, ace nine or King Jack here, which would be which would be really bad if he if he's you know he's terrible if he's playing King Jack this way in this spot. But you know if he's that kind of player, then you see bet. But if he's the first kind, then the C bets it's a pretty tough spot to be C betting and to be putting you know that much of your stack in the pot when you're likely abandoning it on the next street because he's not folding, and you may be better off checking and reassessing and you could always check jam here you mean you've got the chip lead you're going to be scaring him if you uh if you lose you're going to be hurting but you're still going to be alive and you're going yeah. to have to over cards when he calls and he's rarely going to have a good enough hand to call unless he's got aces and you've got an ace blocker yeah i think i think the specifically what you said the first part i thought of that because i had, had wrote here at this point i take note that the villain is very capable of floating. And I think he'd be looking to steal the pot if I don't, you know what I mean? If I, if I check it, I think he's going to be looking to steal that then on the turn for sure. So I think he's capable of floating. And because of that, I, I guess I thought, in, I said specifically, if I turn a check, a Jack, then I'm probably going to look to check to induce just that exact same situation. But um, in retrospect and with what you just said, I, I did wonder later on in my notes, I had wrote, I wondered if a check uh, checking right there would have, you know, would have been better on the flop. So. Yeah. If you check to him on the flop, it's got, it's got to make him think as well. And if he's the kind of person who will automatically bet there, then a jam, uh, you know, a jam will get folds often enough combined with your two overcards equity to probably make it profitable. Okay. CM stuff though. I mean, that's, that's an iffy play. Um, a little earlier in the tournament, I might be a little more willing to do that. Okay. But with the ICM stuff meaning so much right now in the tournament, it's hard to say if that's the right play or not. So, and some of that is knowing the ICM versus your skill level you know, how much does ICM mean to you right now? Are you the best player at this table? Are you going to, are you going to win this thing like very frequently if, if you don't take any gambles or is everybody pretty good? People are pretty aggressive. The stacks are short. It's really kind of a bunch of coin flips in which case, you know, take a, take whatever little advantage you can get. Um, so, I mean, it, yeah, it depends on uh, how you feel about your skill in that tournament. Okay. And then, you know, all your thoughts on this player make it a lot easier to, to, you know, to assess this hand history for sure. Like it's a very uh, detailed hand history that makes it easier to look at, but it is a tough spot. Um, I think that I would likely check the flop unless I see a reason that I think this guy is going to fold a lot because of the way the ranges are here. I mean, I see that like probably 90% of the time in tournaments, but this might be a 10 percenter. And this is another reason to really learn to watch your opponents because 
if you watch this guy watch the flop instead of watching the flop yourself, you will often have a good feeling about whether you should be betting here or not. Okay. And that makes life a lot easier. Yeah, I, I, that's a tip from you that I've heard you say before that I've tried to integrate in my game as much as possible. And I certainly don't want to be the first one looking at the flop. So I have to like consciously be like, don't look, look, watch them. <laughs> you can make a game out of it. I mean, that's, make a game out of it. Just like hand reading where you, you kind of play guess the hand and you can, you know, uh, I, I got better at hand reading fast when I started playing Gus the Hand for five bucks a hand with a buddy of mine while we were watching people play poker. And that, that helps you get better fast. And you can do the same thing with watching people watch the flop. You don't, you're not, you, know, you don't feel this desire to look at the flop and like having to make yourself look at them if you're, lo- if you're watching them thinking, did this guy hit it or not? I really want to know if this guy hit it. And I want to find a towel on this guy. I want to find one towel on each person at the table. You know, those turning it into a predatory thing rather than forcing yourself to do it thing makes it a lot easier. Otherwise you're kind of seeing the flop in your peripheral vision and you're not really paying attention to what's going on at the, you know, in the player's head when you see them watch the flop. Yeah, that's fair. It it definitely makes sense. Um, I, I actually, I, I think that makes it, it's funny because I did have it at the end of my thoughts, like, is this better to just check, check right away from the get go and kind of go from there. So, and the way you uh, explained it, I think it does make sense. Um, do you, I, there is a continued action, but I do feel like even that was pretty helpful. So do you want me to continue or what, what do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. We, pro- we probably got, well, we probably got to wrap it up pretty quick, but yeah, if you want to continue on the hand, go ahead and do it pretty quick. I want to honor Fox's time. And I yeah, that's up. why I wanted to be sure I didn't know where you're at. But I got to wrap up here in a couple of minutes too. So, but yeah, I mean, if, if Fox, if you're open to it, we can kind of quick go through the rest of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. It was just that the he called and the turn was a king, which I thought was a good bluff card for me. I wrote particularly because if villain flops second or third pair, it's not likely he did so with the king kicker, you know, having two pair. And if he is playing like aces or a set tricky at this point, I just feel like um, it's it's either that or something really bad, like twos or threes or something. Because he would have three bet, in my opinion, six to sevens plus or just jammed because that's what he had been doing a lot. And so, again, I was just a little bit stuck on what to do here because other than potentially flopping a set of fours, I still feel like, well, even with fours, that he's really, really polarized on either either end. And with him calling the flop, you know, now do I start to wade in more to that, you know, head end as you described. So, you know, what to do. And again, I'm out of position. And if I check, I'm 99% certain he's going to bomb whether he has a hand or not. So just becomes kind of a tough spot. (laughs) Well, does he ever not have a hand here and still jam it? I, I wonder if I check if he would. I guess I don't know him well enough to know for sure. But my thought was, I think if I check it, he's putting the money in. Yeah, what's his bluffing range on the turn? <laughs> I, I think it's possible he could have something like Jack Nine for the gutter, um, Nine Six, I guess. Otherwise, small pair, like really small baby pairs that he decided to call pre with. Like I said, fours would have flopped a set, but yeah. threes and fives maybe. I don't think Nine Six is in his range. Jack Nine suited might be. I thought but, suited, yeah. Um, but otherwise, with. With a lot of those hands, I think he may check behind. Okay. I mean, he's, you know, if he's got a draw, if he's got a small pair, if he's got a small pair, you've just told him when you check the turn that you don't have a pair yet. And he may check behind to keep the pot small. 
Okay. This is this depends on your knowledge of the player specifically, but he may check behind to keep the pot small. If he's got Jack Nine, he's going to check behind and try to, you know, make his, see, see the free card. <laughs> yeah, uh, at least some of the time. And then then you're kind of waiting behaviors like you wait ranges, you know. But uh, I don't think that he bombs a lot of bluffs here because I can't find a lot of bluffs that he would that he would do that with. At least if he's a typical player of the type you're describing, and you know. Um, if he's a very predatory player who, who just wants to steal the pots, then he, maybe he maybe he's jamming threes here. But um, a lot of people will just check behind with threes as well. So if he jams, it becomes a little less likely that he has threes and a little more likely that he has a, a real hand of some kind. Okay. Okay. And given the XCM, it really is um, – it's really risky to put more chips in here. Yeah, I understand that. That makes sense. Uh, it's very, it's frustrating to bet flop, check, fold, turn because you feel like you've been taken advantage of, um, <laughs> have. But in this case, <laughs> in this case, not necessarily. And the ICM kind of means that since he's got position and he's willing to put chips in, then he gets to take advantage of you right now. And later, you know, when you have kings, you're going to get all of his money because you're going to bet flop check turn and get all of it there. You know, it sometimes helps to think about how to exploit the way someone behaves and to realize that this isn't the time, but there is a way to do that. And the way to do that is to fold now and get him later. Reinforce that behavior then. Yeah. Or, or the way to, you know, the way to get him is to check raise the turn or the way, you know, all the different ways to exploit that behavior, but that's hard stuff to find in your head at the table you know when you're in the middle of it it's harder to find so i often just think about how would i advise myself here and and kind of picture yourself standing behind the table like how do i what would this what would i tell myself to do if i were watching from a distance and that's it's easier to see it that way or think about what would you know what would i be telling me to do right here and then you know sometimes the answer comes to you that way okay well, I thank you a lot for uh, listening and kind of walking through it with me. So. No problem. I love the super detailed hand history. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, man. <laughs> you know, the part of that, you know, what's he calling behind with preflop? What's he calling with on the flop? It's just sort of weird that he ended up putting in a quarter of a stack or whatever it was on those two streets without ever coming back over the top. I don't know. That's it. Yeah. I, well, I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send the rest to you sometimes, Steve, see what you yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where, you know, one of those things I think that, I always think about what are some of those spots that have always made me feel uncomfortable and then trying to do that to other people. And then one of those things is when people are just floating behind you, you know, you don't know if they're floating you or whatever, but they're, they're not folding. They're not raising. They just keep calling, you know, throughout the course of the tournament. I think uh, as a rec player that in the past has always made me very uncomfortable. Now I've sort of learned some tools around that, but I think that's something that we all sort of, struggle with is like what do i do with this guy like what is, is he just floating to steal it later is he you know does he or she have a monster that they're just trapping with are they on some kind of a, a gut ball you know a gutter straight draw and i should be pounding them you know it's very unsettling and that's why uh part of what i love about fox's book about flop about pre-flop opening ranges uh you know and how they're super tight early and then they lose stuff later it's just that power of position and i think some people don't understand all of the elements that position brings one of those being if you're in position, you get to avoid being floated, at least in position a lot. And you, yeah. you can decide if it's going to be a free card or not. Uh, and so I think those are so many of the elements of position that people don't realize uh, when they're deciding what hands they're going to enter pots with. So 
Go ahead. Um, one of the ways to deal with that kind of frustration is to watch the players that are playing the most hands with you closely all the time to so learn about them. The, the people who aren't playing any hands, you don't have to worry about them. The people who are playing tons of hands and have position on you are the people you need to know about. And you can usually figure out, are they floating lots of hands because they're willing to go deep into pots and they're willing to put a lot of chips in? Are they floating lots of hands trying to steal them and then they'll back down if that doesn't work? Are they predictable? Are they always going to call flop, bet the turn when checked to? Right. Are they, you know, or are sometimes they're going to check behind and if they're mixing up their, their behavior, if they're, are they doing so correctly and, are, and then maybe they're just a very good player and that's, that's a problem. <laughs> um, but if it's a person who is always going to call flop and then fold turn, if you bet into them again and bet, if you check to them, then that's bingo. You've got like, you're going to own this guy. Right. Yeah. Cause now when you have it, you just bet flop check raise turn. When you don't have it, you just bet flop, bet turn, and he he always gives you the pot. Like you, you, and you get the maximum value from him every time. You just have to watch them carefully enough to know how are this, how are these people behaving. Yeah. And if instead this is a person who, you know, calls a lot of flops but then folds a lot after, then you just you just bet, bet. and you, you use the down bet a lot because you get them to call even more flops with the right. small bet, and then get them to fold even more turns with the bigger bet, and you get them making bigger mistakes. You know, is this a person who believes you if you bet a lot and never believes you if you bet small, in which case you can kind of control how they're behaving, you know, but in particular, when somebody's playing a lot of hands with you and they have position on you, you need to be watching carefully for these things and know how to own this person. That's so good. Yeah. It makes me think of, I've been trying to, you know, as I try to take my game to the next level, instead of just taking an action, you know, instead of deciding here's the right action to take, I'm trying to always ask myself, or complete this sentence, I am betting with the intention of, you know, or I am calling with the intention of, you know, sort of having that mentality. So at least it forces me to think about what do I do if I'm re-raised or, or whatever. And I think as I think about that, it, it, it's trying to lead me down a path of, of completing that sentence for other people that are against me. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. When people are calling behind me, you know, sort of trying to figure out what is their motivation? Are they generally calling with the intention of, stealing or are they calling with the intention of hitting or you know what are they actually calling with and so i think that's consistent i think with what you're saying is trying to go beyond just oh they called me to trying to figure out their intentions and their motivations behind that and the good news is we're not playing chess we don't have to think seven streets ahead (laughs) (laughs) three streets you know the decision tree isn't all that big you can actually think i'm calling because i want and and then this is how i'm going to handle all these different situations and then you can always reassess, constantly be reassessing, but call with the intention of, and then and then know like multiple streets ahead. How is this going to play out? How am I going to handle different situations that come up here? You know, if if it was you know if we're playing, playing with ten streets, it would be impossible. But we're playing a game right. really uh, that's very complicated in a lot of ways. But isn't that complicated in terms of the number of decisions we're going to have to make? And we can think pretty far ahead group things into ranges and i wanted to quickly make the point um when you're talking about dealing with ranges and flop bets i often break ranges into pieces and and working on that skill set is really important and so when you um instead of considering every hand 
all the range, all the combinatorics and how many possibilities there are and all these things, right? This is the rec poker podcast, not the, not the pro poker podcast. Right. You, guys, you guys aren't going to like spend hours and hours with me on a spreadsheet trying to learn to do this for a living. Right. So as rec players, the best way to do it is to break the range into pieces that are, that are the equivalent, the same equity against your hand. And that is a thing you can practice at the table and get very good at through repetition. So, you know, the flop is, uh, a six, four, and you have a pair of nines and, and you bet and your opponent calls right now, his hand, his, his range is sets aces, you know, any ace, uh, that's about it. Straight draws. Maybe if they were maybe some loose sort of player. Yeah. Right. If, okay. if the six, four are two hearts, then you've got to include all the hearts, including yeah. aces with a heart draw. True. Mm -hmm. Hearts kind of thing. Then you look at those in how they play against your hand. Like you're beating the flush draws, but you're only, you know, a two to one favorite at best. They're likely to have overcards with a flush draw. If you've just got the ace six, four, you're facing sets and aces. And that's, that's bad. That's a bad news situation. And you're in real trouble here. Um, if we get a different flop, if you have ace king and the flop is 10, three, three, there's a couple callers of your initial pre-flop raise and you bet and you get called when he calls, say it's 10, three, three rainbow. He's either got a 10, a three or a small pair. If he's got a small pair, it plays the same as a 10. If he's got a three, it plays very differently. So you, you put, you put it in two ranges Either he's got this pair that he might be able to fold, whether it's a 10 or a pair of sixes or whatever, or he's got a three and you're in big trouble. So then you figure out how to play against these, these two ranges and how he's going to respond with these two ranges. What you know about the player is he going to call another bet with a 10 or with a pair of sixes, or if I make a big bet here, is he just going to put me on aces and fold like a lot of people do? If he's got a three here and I check, is he going to check it behind or is he going to bet it? If he's got a 10, is he going to check it behind or is he going to bet it? And if you can answer some of those questions, you can know how to get away from the pot when he's got a three and how to steal the pot from him when he's got a 10 hmm. all the time and break it into those two ranges and then knowing your opponent and how they will play with those ranges. You know, So think about breaking the ranges into useful pieces and that helps you play against people on the flop a lot better. That is really good. That is good stuff. Yeah, it makes uh, sense. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I want to I let you go, Fox. Derek, man, thanks for joining us. Stacy's actually running out to play the 6 o'clock tournament at Aces tonight, so hopefully he'll, we'll get some – get some. Uh, good luck, Stacy. Good yeah, luck, right? Into the ethers. I'll, I'll pass that on, I'll pass that on to him. Uh, Fox, just as, as we close off here, curious – uh, and obviously just, just gold. Um, and I know a lot of this stuff you take for granted, but for those of us are still learning the game, we're like, wow, this is so good. Are you, are you currently, I know you're, you're, you're involved in a lot of things. You've got next level, you got a ninja. I know you're, you've got a photography uh, thing going. Project, uh, and I know. Are you, uh, are you actively taking on students when you refer to your students or are you kind of booked up there? Yes, I am. Uh, since I moved to Vegas, um, honestly, since Black Friday, I've kind of been taking students. I haven't turned down a lot of students since before Black Friday. There was a time there where I was making enough money online and students are a lot of work and I had a lot of students approaching me. Um, you know, the hardest work I do is not poker. It's definitely students. It's because it's, uh, I feel like I have to be right all the time and I mm. have to 
make sure that I, you know, it's, it's hard work and it's a lot of preparation to, to make sure that you give people their, the value for their money. But there was a time before Black Friday where I was making so much money online that I, even charging 150 an hour for a student and some prep time, I was losing money. Yeah. But now that that's gone, um, I'm, I'm taking students, uh, whether people want to fly into Vegas and do a day of lessons here or whether they want to do lessons on Skype or Zoom. Uh, yeah, I really like teaching. It's just a lot of work. But yeah. Since Black Friday and, and, and less people trying to play poker for a living because it's become harder to do. Now you have to play live. Um, then there's a lot of more a lot more recreational students who have less time to take lessons. And so I'm not doing, you know, I don't have students who are taking four hours a week anymore. Um, I have a lot more open, a lot more openings and I'm a lot more willing to do them. And I really like teaching. It's really fun. I just uh, couldn't do it 40 hours a week. Well, you're, you're, I mean, I'll put a plug. I mean, you're very gifted at it too. I mean, everything, every time I've ever talked to you, you're able to take these complex things and make them simple for us. So I appreciate that. So people, if you're out there, if you're looking for a coach, you know, here's another option. Uh, Fox is fantastic. And uh, every encounter I've had with him, a guy of high character uh, cares a lot about you personally. So I I would, I would highly recommend uh, looking up Fox if you're interested in lessons. And I know Fox, you and I have talked about doing some things uh, more with the rec poker training and that sort of thing. So we'll continue to talk about that. Maybe someday there's a, a future in doing some sort of a, a group coaching session. If we can work out the logistics, uh, we've got a lot of people that are going to hear this and be like, man, that is the guy that I need to talk to. But for many of us, it's hard to uh, invest that much money in coaching when, you know, we're not playing that much in terms of buy-in. So I think uh, hopefully we'll have some sort of a thing in the future where we can actually uh, figure that figure out. I'm sure we'll figure something out. I have some ideas we'll have to talk about soon. And the yeah. good news is for us, um, very few people put any serious work into, into their poker education. So the game stays soft and nobody, you know, almost no one sees it realistically when they, when I get students who want to play for a living, they think I want to play poker for a living. I'll take a few lessons. Right. <laughs> right. Like, would you approach being an attorney that way? Are you, right. are you kidding? What, you know, you can't, you can't make real money doing anything without spending a year or two at least studying hard yeah. and spending some money on it. There's not, you don't just get, you know, you can, you can take a nine week coding boot camp for 10 grand online and learn to code and make real money, but you're going to spend 10 grand. Right. Take three yep. coding lessons and then you're just off crushing. Um, and, and most people think that that's how it works. Even most people that want to play for a living think that mm. that's how it works to so just, well, I read a book and I took two <laughs> lessons. I'm ready to go, and I should be making pretty good money here. And then they, six months later, they're back at their job because it doesn't work that way, you know. But if when, when people see it as I can make a living doing this, or I can make a nice side income doing this, and this is all money invested in education that's really wisely spent, then you know, then they do really well. If you can right. spend. You know, if, you, if you're paying me a hundred bucks an hour and it's increasing your hourly rate by 50 cents an hour, every time you take a lesson, that's a steal. As long as you're going to play more than 200 hours of poker in your life. Right. Then it, <laughs> right. Just like, then it becomes just like an amazing investment. But luckily for us, most people don't see it that way because I would hate if my hourly rate plummeted because everyone was good at poker and I had to do lessons all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, good, good stuff. Any, uh, any final words, Derek or Fox? Just thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on, man. I'll see you all at iNinja. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care, y'all. Bye. Be well.